as you all know, we've been involved in this laying the foundation campaign for many weeks. We actually began this process well over six months ago. Uh, many of our leaders had many assignments, many responsibilities to put all of this together. My work was very, fairly simple. The task assigned to me was fairly uh, straightforward. They asked me, Pastor James, can you, can you preach uh, four sermons on stewardship, on giving, on finances? I, I didn't think too much of it. I will start preparing uh, mid-May. Shouldn't be too difficult. I found myself struggling quite a bit in my heart. I shared, a, shared with you briefly about this in the last communion. Um, after much wrestling with the scriptures and with my own heart, I realized the difficulty was not in the content, because the content is thoroughly biblical. The issue of finances, wealth, possessions, stewardship, giving, is replete throughout the Old and New Testament. The content was not the source of my wrestling. It was the timing of it. For me to stand here and preach four sermons on giving, right in the middle of laying the foundation campaign, called to question whether we were using the pulpit for our own purposes. Felt there was potential for us to compromise the integrity of the pulpit for our own ends, for our own purposes. Potential for us to damage uh, the trust relationship that exists between the members of the church and the pulpit here and the leaders of our church. Um, it was made all the more difficult because of my desire involved in it. If I didn't want a building, if I didn't want a location, want an indoor gymnasium, it would not be an issue. I could preach with a clear conscience. But in my heart, I do want a building. I do want a central location for the propagation of the gospel, for ministry, for us to gather together as a church and grow roots. I do want that. So it's made all the more difficult. Yesterday, someone got to us, um, took us to the LA Avengers Indoor Arena Football League. And I wrestled in my heart, well, it's a Saturday, I need to prepare for today. Saturday is a day where I, you know, amp up and kind of have reserve energy stored for the Lord's Day. For me to tell the family, we're not going to the Avengers game, it was fairly easy because, you know, indoor football doesn't attract me very much. <laughs> I don't even know they're still playing. Now, if it was a Lakers game, a playoff game, it would have been very difficult. More than likely, I would have gone to the game. <laughs> And taking some Red Bull in the morning, and I'd be, I'd be fine. You see how my desire is connected to our decisions, and it's a temptation to justify decision because of our own desires. So that was a struggle in, in our hearts as leaders and in my heart as the teacher of the church. Um, and that is why we resolved to just do one study on 2 Corinthians 8. Right, 2 Corinthians 8. Um, we didn't want to have you view the church like everything else in the world, where the church exists to use you as a means to one end. Um, we want to believe in the church, in Christ's church, that we're not here to use each other for an ulterior motive, for an ulterior hidden agenda that we're sincerely, genuinely here, truly for the glory of God, for the gospel of Christ. That is how it is in the real world. I mean, I learned this, um, uh, somewhat of a shameful uh, uh, sharing. I learned this early on as a sophomore in high school. I was uh, not a good student. I skipped a lot of school. I ditched a lot of days. I mean, just, you think... I'm exaggerating. Whatever number you're thinking in a year, multiply that by 10. That's about right. I mean, seriously. Other ditchers of the school would say, James, you're ditching too much. <laughs> I mean, you're, going, you're, you're too extreme. You need to come to school once in a while. One day, well, and so I was getting away with it, and finally I got caught ditching. And I was, it resulted in 300 detention hours. 
I think it was a school record. It might still be there at Warren High School. I'll go check one of these days if my record still stands. The only way I got rid of it was uh, they had a canned food drive. And for every can you bring in, you get one hour removed from detention. <laughs> so I went to Costco and bought all these Vienna sausages. And it's all good, you know. Graduated, no problem. But when they caught me, they took me to the attendance office. and They wanted to review all my absences. And they're going through all my notes. And all my notes were in my handwriting. They're all like, you know, my excuses, right? And I was telling them which one was legitimate excuses, which ones were like, you know, were false were, that I made up. And after a few, the counselor realized that they're all made up, that none of them were legitimate. And she kind of brushed it aside and told me not to, not to uh, worry about it. And I realized why. Because if I skipped school, they didn't get funding from the state and from the federal government for every day I was absent as a student. If I brought a note, they would get partial funding for an excused absence. If I did school, they would get no funding. So the reason that they were concerned about my absences was not in my education. It was not me personally. But it was about their funding. It was about money. It was then I realized they don't really care about me. It's just about money, what they can get out of it. And that has repeated throughout my life. Whether I go to buy a car, talk to a salesman, someone I knew from the past, I thought he's my friend. It turned out he's not out there looking out for me. He's out there looking at the bottom line for his own paycheck. Whether it's hiring someone to buy life insurance, term life, or whole life, he's not my friend. He's not looking out for me. I'm a means to another end. So I must guard myself, watch myself, study, educate myself so that I don't get quote-unquote scammed or exploited by someone else. That's what it's like in the real world, but we don't want that to come into the church. We want our agenda to be singular, the glory of God, the gospel of Christ. The church exists for God's glory, and He is our agenda the pastors, the leaders of the church, we're not here to see you as a means to an earthly end. To see you as what we can get out of you for our purposes. We are here so that what can we get ourselves out to glorify God, to exalt the Lord. But this um, road called agenda, ulterior motive, means to another end, is a two-way street. We must not abuse our authority, our influence for other ends. At the same time, you must not use your influence, use your giving for ulterior ends as well. As you serve Christ, as you give, as you minister, you as well must struggle with your own heart to make sure that what is central, your central motivation in all that you do It's for God's glory, not something else. So we shepherd your heart this morning. You must not give as a means for salvation. If you give to be saved, you can give everything that you have and there is no hope for you. The only way to be saved is by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And we give because we're saved, not to be saved. If you are giving to earn favor from the leaders, well, first of all, it's not going to work because it's anonymous. I have no idea for the past 10 years what any of you give. I have no idea, and we'll never know. It's completely anonymous, anonymous, so we'll have no idea. It, it will not work. Not only that, it's a hidden ulterior motive. You must give to please the Lord, not please any person. You must not give to get some kind of ownership of the church. This is not a timeshare presentation, right? (laughs) We're not selling a fractional ownership of Cornerstone where you give and you get a brick or you get a bench or you get a small office in the church. No, it's spiritual ownership in our hearts, not the physical building. You want the building, you can have it. Who wants a building? We want the gospel. We want glory of God. We want the word of God. It's not to get some kind of physical ownership of the church. It must must not be for our children. We are not giving for our children because if if God does not save them, they'll have no inheritance in our future church. They'll be outside, right? 
They have no spiritual ownership of, of Christ's church. We are giving for God's children. That in the future, there will be people that God saves, that we have no idea who they are. We don't even know them. By, we, have, we don't know them. We'll know them in the future, but right now we have no idea who they are. And they will benefit from our giving and our sacrifice. How is that fair? Because they are God's children. And our own children, if they do not follow Christ, if they're not saved, they're not Christians, they would have no part in Christ's churchyard cornerstone. So this street goes both ways. So all of us, we must search the scriptures and search our hearts to make sure that we have no ulterior agenda here. But our, what motivates us, what fuels us, is the gospel It's Christ's death on the cross, our salvation, the grace of God, and the glory of God. So with all that said, we want to study on the issue of giving because it is biblical. It is in the scriptures. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now a brief background on this epistle written by the Apostle Paul. As many of you all know, it is the most personally revealing of all Paul's epistles. Commentator has said, though it is perhaps the least familiar of all his inspired writings, often overlooked by individual believers and preachers alike, the neglect of this magnificent epistle is an immense loss to the church. For it has so much to offer. No one in ministry should be ignorant of the riches of these insights. A A church should not ordain anyone who has not read this epistle and commentaries on this treatise. In this letter, Paul's godly character shines through as he interacts with the most troubled of his congregations. In 13 chapters, Paul, we find Paul's humility, reveals himself as a clay pot. He stressed his human weakness and inadequacy, and he refused to defend himself when he was attacked repeatedly. We find a shepherd's heart here in 2 Corinthians. We find Paul's passionate concern for his flock for their spiritual growth, for their safety, for their welfare. And in the very middle of this book, in chapter 8, surprisingly, we find Paul teaching on giving. We find uh, precious truths on the issue of stewardship. Synchronous chapter 8, verse 1, Paul is transitioning to a new subject. In all translations, except for the ESV, there is an and now, the Greek word day, a transitional word used by Paul to signify a change in subject, change in topic. ESV curiously does not translate this, uh, but it is there in the Greek, it is there in all other translations. Paul had just dealt with their repentance in chapter 7, latter part of chapter 7. He had been admonishing them in his first letter in 1 Corinthians. He had been admonishing them and restoring them for the first seven chapters. And he speaks of their godly sorrow, how they responded to Paul's rebukes and corrections. And they responded not with worldly sorrow that that leads to death. These Corinthian believers, they responded with godly grief. The evidences are, are found in verse 11. Paul said, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. What eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And he concludes, verse 13, therefore we are comforted. Paul called them to repentance and they repented not just in word but in deed as well. In their emotional, visceral response, their repentance before God was clearly evident. So now that the Corinthians have been restored to God 
And now that Paul's relationship as an apostle to the Corinthian church has been resolved. There is now unity in Christ. The first thing he deals with is the issue of giving. You have practically repented to God. Now practically show your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. He begins verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Uh, Specifically three churches. Churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He's telling them, he wants them to know, I want you to know the grace of God that has been working in this whole other region. Principally these three churches. Now what is Paul doing? Is Paul succumbing to the bragging culture, the shame culture that's found in the Middle East? Uh, we know about that. I, I, I know about that growing up. My parents would say, you know, your cousin never ditches, right? <laughs> you know, your friend, my friend's cousin's sister's third son got into this school, had this GPA, right? So we know that, the pressure that our parents used uh, through bragging or shame to manipulate and influence us. Is this, what Paul, is this what Paul is doing? Paul is using an example of another church to, to influence the Christians at Corinth. No, that is not what, is, what Paul is doing. He's not trying to shame them. He's giving glory to God by giving glory to God's grace. Paul calls attention to the grace of God that has been working in the churches of Macedonia. He's not esteeming these believers, these churches. He's highlighting, look what God's grace has done. And and these sinners who used to serve idols, these pagan Gentiles who were living an empty way of life, handed down to them from their forefathers, they used to worship created things. Now God saved them, and God is sanctifying them, God is using them, and God is doing all, doing it all. So he's highlighting to them the grace of God and promoting God, not men. And that is essentially what we need to do very carefully as we esteem Christians and esteem one another, that we're not elevating people. Now who are we? We're clay pots, Tupperware, throwaway containers, nothing intrinsically valuable in us whatsoever. The treasure is what is within, the gospel of God, the grace of God that saves, sustains, sanctifies, and God uses to glorify Himself through us. That is what we exalt in. That is what we boast in. So as we esteem one another, we must take note that we give glory to God, not to man. That is exactly what Paul is doing. He's giving glory to God. Glory to the grace of God. These three churches, from the beginning, were model churches. They were choice churches. Remember Acts 16, Paul was asleep and he had a dream, a vision of a man from Macedonia saying to him, come and help us. Right? You know, We all wait for that dream and that's just for the Apostle Paul, it's not for us. Right? Paul had this dream led by the Holy Spirit because he was an apostle, led to Macedonia because God knew they were people. The harvest is plentiful. And if any worker would go and spread God's word, they would be saved. And God would honor them, build them up to be mighty believers. So Paul went to this region and preached the gospel. And he testifies to them what happened when he went there. First Thessalonians 1.6 You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction. There was persecution in the midst, you're being, you're suffering, you're being tormented, you're going through trials because you're hearing the word, but you receive the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and you're, the, the, News of your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they were saved powerfully by God's grace. 
and God's grace was continuing to operate in their lives. So for the first six verses, what Paul is doing is he's recounting the evidences of God's grace in the lives of uh, these Macedonian believers. Verses 1 through 6, 1 through 5 is all past tense. He's describing here. He's explaining. Verse 1, we want you to know the grace of God that has been given, past tense. Verse 2, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It already happened. Verse 3, they gave, past tense. Verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. So, Paul is just describing to the Corinthians what God by His grace, is done in these people. And that is our study this morning. But the context is different, right? Who they were giving to is different. The circumstances are different. But these principles are timeless. And they are uh, beneficial to us. So in verses 1 through 5, we find seven characteristics of giving that is motivated by God's grace. Seven marks, seven elements, seven traits of radical generosity that is prompted by God's grace. Paul says, that's the prototype right there. Corinthians, I want you to see how God's grace ought to operate in Christians. When a Christian says they're, a, they're, they're saved and they live for themselves, they're selfish, they're greedy, they're just soaking it in, and they believe in the prosperity gospel, and they're just seeking comfort and peace, those aren't marks of God's grace. I want to set before you an example of how God's grace works in Christians' lives by using the example of the Macedonian believers. So we'll go through seven characteristics. And then, starting from verse 6 through 11, Paul gives simply two applications. It's one study, two parts. I'll probably finish that next week. Verse 7, excel. In light of that, I want you to excel. I want you to finish. Excel and finish. For, for, for our time, seven marks, seven elements. First, first mark of grace-motivated giving is that it is done in the midst of Affliction and poverty. Grace-motivated giving is done in the midst of afflictions and poverty. Verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul's strong language here vividly depicts the Macedonians' desperate situation. He uses strong language. Extreme translates the phrase katabathas, according to the depth, the pits, the bottom. They were in extreme poverty. Right. Not only poverty, but palus, severe, many trials, many afflictions. They were under trying, difficult circumstances. High taxes, low economic status, persecution, all came together to reduce the Macedonian believers to abject poverty. They were going without. They're going through difficulty, going through lack. Yet in the midst of their trying circumstances, God's grace was active in their hearts. Their circumstances did not diminish their love. God's grace caused them to move their eyes away from themselves and to fix them upon Christ. They believed wholeheartedly in Philippians 4.19. They were confident that God would supply all their needs. All their needs. Therefore, their responsibility was Matthew 6.33 Seek God, His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you as well. They believed that and they lived it out. And they didn't use their poverty, they didn't use their persecution as an excuse not to obey Christ, not to give. God's grace activated them to rise above their circumstances. 
And this is true throughout church history. Devout Christians give no matter what the situation. Even the worst circumstances cannot hinder believers' devotion to Christ. The opposite is true as well. If you wait until the time of prosperity to give, you'll never give. You know, those people, they want to wait to the perfect time to follow Christ. Oh, I can't follow Christ right now. I've got to study for this class or that class. I can't follow Christ now because I have to get a job and I have to get married and have kids and I have to buy a home and I have to prepare for retirement and enjoy this world. One day, right, on my deathbed, I'll follow Christ. That's when I have lived for myself. I'm done with the fleeting pleasures of this world at that perfect time then I will follow Christ. That day will come, heart so hardened, love for this world has so overwhelmed that soul, it'd be near impossible. Yes, the thief on the cross was saved, but just one thief. One thief was saved to give us hope, but not the other, as a warning. We are not to wait. Christians don't wait until the perfect time when all is still, when all is uh, peace for us to serve Christ. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, we follow Christ, we serve Christ. That, that's what sets us apart from the world. And in the midst of poverty, these Macedonian believers, as exemplar, exemplary Christians, gave to the Lord and therefore they humble us. They rebuke us. They inspire us. This is proof positive that true generosity is not determined by one's economic status. That generosity is determined by the status of one's heart. What's operating in that person's heart? Is it the grace of God? Secondly, verse 2, grace-motivated giving is done with abundance of joy. Parasea, abundance, a surplus, overflowing of joy. These Macedonians did not give grudgingly, reluctantly, out of sense of duty or under duress. They were not motivated by fear of divine punishment or Paul's displeasure. They gave gladly, freely, joyfully, knowing that God loves a cheerful giver. Their joy transcended their pain, sorrow, and suffering. And they rejoiced at laying up treasures in heaven, knowing that the greater blessing is to the giver, not the receiver. That it is a privilege to give, for God will give back in greater measure. Only the grace of God can account for, for such generosity being done with joy. Right. Being done in joy. Generous giving with joy in the midst of adversity is really, one, is really a confirmation of one's faith. It is passing the test. It is the distinctive mark of the Christian faith that we suffer, we go through trials, we sacrifice, and we give out of joy, not out of human obligation, not as a burden, not grudgingly. No one's twisting our arms. With great satisfaction, we joyfully give. This was uh, Paul's practice. 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Paul said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work for you with joy. Chapter 2, verse 3. You made me rejoice that my joy will be the joy of you all. 2 Corinthians 6.10. I love this. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The Paul's a realist. Right? Paul's not this guy with his head in the clouds, you know. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. He was a practical guy. He was living in the real world. Uh, he understood that suffering in Christ and suffering for Christ had one thing in common. Suffering. 
And suffering is painful. It's not pleasurable. There is no happiness in suffering. No one wants to suffer or delights in suffering in and of itself. So he is full of sorrow as he suffers. So if you're going through suffering and yet you're happy, I don't know, something's wrong with you, right? Uh, That's not trusting in God or God's sovereignty or that's not the Christian approach to 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 the world uh, that kind of freaks non-believers out when Christians are going through trial and they're happy. No, we're, I'm not happy when I go through trials or suffering or pain or disappointment. I am sad. I am sorrowful. I am grieved. Yet, undergirding all of that, there is joy. There is an abiding joy. There is rejoicing in one's heart right? because of God's kindness, benevolence. God's grace, God's sovereignty. So in the midst, Paul modeled that. Now where did Paul get this from? Where did um, the Macedonian believers get this from? They got it from Christ. Hebrews 12.2 As he was going to the cross, I stood with tears, screaming out in cries and in agony, with the joy set before him he endured the cross. There was this abiding joy in his heart. Because he was pleasing the Father. He was doing the will of God. He was giving glory to his Father, therefore, for the joy set before me under the cross. So grace-motivated giving is marked by an abundance of joy, no matter the circumstance. Joy because it is rooted in the gospel of God's grace. Albert Barnes said this, quote, Their joy arises from the hopes and promises of the gospel. Notwithstanding their persecutions, their joy has abounded, and the effect of their joy has been seen in the liberal contribution which they have made. Their joy could not be repressed by their persecution, and they cheerfully contributed largely to the aid of others. Thirdly, grace-motivated giving is overflowing with generosity. Grace-motivated giving is overflowing with generosity. Verse 2 again. In a severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Literally, abundance. Though they were not wealthy, they possessed a wealth of generosity. Though their bank accounts were small, their hearts were large. They were marked by selfless generosity. The sense here is that they were willing to give more than they were able. In fact, Paul states again, verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Paul knew these believers. He spent considerable time living with them. He knew what they were able to do. And when, they, when he saw how much they had get, given, he said, it was beyond their means. Overflowing with generosity. At the same time, it wasn't mindless giving. It wasn't impulsive. It wasn't unwise giving. And there are examples of that in the church. And that's a wrong example to follow. Giving is to be out of joy, generous, but also proportional, also planned, also wise. That's the fourth mark. Grace-motivated giving is proportional. Again, verse 3, they gave according to their means. According to their means. So, someone like... um, Bill Gates, he gives a billion dollars. The amount is much more than what these Macedonians gave, by far. But proportionally, what the Macedonians gave was much greater than what these billionaires can ever give. Because Bill Gates probably gave, what, one one one-hundredth of his wealth, these Macedonians were much more generous because they gave proportionally 
wisely planned, beyond their means, according to their means. This is um, Paul's teaching, consistent with Paul's teaching elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 16.2, set aside a sum of money in keeping with its income. 2 Corinthians 8.12, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So this idea of uh, tithing as a mandatory command for Christians is now found in the scriptures. Tithing is an Old Testament tax for the theocracy of Israel. Therefore, all Israelites had a flat tax of 23%. They would give, they would give for the nation of Israel and also for the temple. For New Testament believers, the command is proportional giving. 10% might be a good training wheel starting place. But God wants us to give proportionally, not some flat percentage or flat amount. All right? So that makes sense, right? We all need to be wise according to what we have, according to the means that God has given to us. I mean, if you make $1,000 a month, you're barely getting by on needs. Give 1%. You know, give half percent. Because First Timothy says that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Right? Use that money to provide for yourself, your wife, your children. Right? But if you're making $100,000 a month, right? Some of you guys, right? That's you, right? In our church, very smart people. Right? And you give 10%, you need to repent, right? What is 10% of 100000 right? Dan, calculus teacher. <laughs> I don't know math, but if you're living on $900,000 or $90,000 a month, and you're living it up because you gave your tithe. That's not being generous. Proportional giving. These Macedonians were generous, but they were not foolish. Right? They were wise. They gave according to their means. Right? Reviewing the first four marks. Grace-motivated giving is done in the midst of affliction and poverty. Grace-motivated giving is done with abundance of joy. Third, overflowing with generosity. Fourth, proportional Fifthly, grace-motivated giving is sacrificial. It hurts. It costs. It warrants sacrifice. It's not just giving the leftovers, but it's giving where you feel it in your life. You feel it personally. David talked about this in 2 Samuel 24, 24. When he was making sacrifice to God, Aruna said, I'll give it to you for free. And David said, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord my God, burn offerings that cost me nothing. And he paid for the sacrifice that he would personally sacrifice, personally cost him to worship the Lord. Likewise for us, we don't want leftovers from our family members. We don't want leftover time or energy. They give you, a, you know, those white elephant gifts. I don't know. It's kind of like dishonoring. It's kind of like, it's not right. We, we all bring gifts in Christmas, white elephants, the gift that nobody wants. So there's one gift that our church that's circulating for like five years on Golden Pond, right? That DVD. It's still wrapped in the original packaging. Somebody gets that. Who wants to watch on Golden Pond? I apologize if that's your favorite movie. Or most of us, right? You get that next year, bring it again. What if you were to give that to your family or to your friend? That'd be dishonoring because you're giving something that you don't want anyways. That you're going to give away or throw away. That's not a gift. Likewise, the Lord. Macedonians were giving sacrificially. Uh, I like the next one. Number six. Grace-motivated giving is voluntary. It's voluntary. Now, it is possible, Paul, because he cared for the Macedonians and he knew the abject poverty uh, that they were under, that he didn't ask them to contribute to the need of the Jerusalem Christians, that he bypassed them, and he asked the Corinthians to give and contribute. Region of Achaia, 
Well, the Macedonians heard about this opportunity to give. And what did they do? Verse 3, verse 3, of their own free will. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It was, Paul didn't come and beg them. They begged Paul. They pleaded with Paul. Why did you overlook us? How come we're not involved in this Christian uh, privilege, this Christian responsibility and privilege to give to God? And it seemed Paul said, Oh, you guys, you guys are poor. Just take care of yourself. And Macedonia said, We'll take care of ourselves. Let us determine that. Oh, what Bob shared earlier. Don't treat us like children. We are believers. We are wise. And we'll give to the Lord. We're not giving to you, Paul. We beg you for this opportunity to give. Right? Whole different paradigm, whole different mindset. Experienced a little bit of this when we went to missions in Mexico. We visited our family. And she was a believer in the church. And she was living in a tent. And she had one light bulb and fuel few things in the house, all run on a car battery, and the, the f- ground was just dirt floor. They didn't have even just flooring. And we're sitting there, and I'm feeling guilty, and we're praying for them, and she asks us for a favor, and she said to us, will you pray for our church? Will, will you pray for this neighborhood that the gospel will go forth and people will be saved? Her Her prayer was not, for flooring. Her prayer was not for electricity or, or, or common conveniences. She had everything she needed. Her family. They had roof over their head. They had a tent over their heads. They had food. They had a place to sleep. They had clothing. Now all we need is the gospel. In our pride, in our pos- prosperity, in our affluence, we think, oh, you need all these things. Uh, you need a refrigerator with ice cubes. right? You need air conditioning in your car. Or you need a car their mindset is, no, those are luxuries. We're doing fine without these luxuries. What is necessary is God and His gospel. These believers volunteered. They begged for this opportunity to be part of this privilege to to koinonia, to fellowship together with Paul in the effort of ministering to fellow believers. And then Roman numeral 7, finally, number 7. Grace-motivated giving is done out of prior giving oneself to God. Grace-motivated giving is done out of prior giving oneself to God. Macedonians' first response was to give themselves to the Lord first and then giving of themselves materially. They gave their hearts first to God and then their possessions. The supreme act of giving is not giving money, not attending church, not singing hymns, but giving oneself. If you give things in your life, but you don't give God your heart, that is not generated by God's grace. What is motivating you is pride, it's ego, it's fear of man, human obligation, cultural reasons. It's anything and everything except the grace of God. Grace of God in a Christian motivates him to give himself first to God and then his possessions. The idea of drug-dealing Christianity idea of wrong priorities. You make money dealing drugs, you give that to God. Some churches might not care, but the Christian church cares. How you give is more important than what you give. As Christians, how we give, first priority must be we give to God first, our hearts. We are mindful that we are, we belong to God. Roman, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
to present your lives as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And out of the overflow of that, we give things to God. We give things to God. We'll finish out the applications that Paul gives to excel and to finish next week. But just to close our time, let's review these uh, seven marks of grace-motivated giving. John Calvin in his introduction to Institutes of the Christian Religion, said the purpose of his writing is so that readers might know the scriptures and know their own hearts. So all of us, again, time for spiritual self-surgery. We know the scriptures now. We know, hopefully, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 6. Now it's time for us to look at our own hearts and consider what is motivating you What motivated you to come to church this morning? What is motivating you to sing and minister and even to give? Are you truly being, are you responding to the gospel of Christ, to undeserved favor, God's grace, or something else? Secondly, um, going through all the seven marks, are you waiting for a perfect time for you to uh, believe in Christ, commit to Christ? Are you waiting for a certain experience or time to radically commit to following Christ? Are you waiting for a certain time, certain situation where you will give to the Lord? Is there joy in your following of Christ? in your discipleship, in your pursuit of Christ, as you serve, as you give, are you giving out of joy or is there grumbling in your heart? Is there bitterness, anger, reluctance? Fourthly, are you being generous? Are you comparing yourself to others and saying, well, I'm giving more, I'm doing more, I'm sacrificing more. But God does not compare us to one another in your heart, are you being liberal? Are you as generous to God as you are toward yourself? Right. Go through your checkbook and see how much you spend on your own pleasures, right. on your own luxuries. And you're so generous to yourself. Are you generous to God, to God's church, and to God's people? Are you resolving with wisdom? Are you planning according to your means? Uh, if you're giving above and beyond and thinking that is faith, that's not faith. Right? God, you know, you, let's say you make 5000 and you, you say, I'm going to give 7000 to the Lord and God's going to provide the 2000 That's presumptuous faith. Right? That's false faith. God never. God has already provided for you, already provided for me, and our responsibility is to be good stewards of what He has given to us, not to be have prideful faith and say, "I'm going to give the world to God, and God will provide all these things." God has provided according to your means wisely. Are you giving to the Lord, and are you sacrificially giving to the Lord? Are you giving to God yourself time, effort, and possessions that are leftovers to you? You're going to throw it away. I might as well just give it to the church. Uh, I'm done with it. I'm not going to use it anyways. Are you giving sacrificially? Are you voluntarily giving to the Lord? It is not out of compulsion, not out of human influence or pressure. Bring your heart, consider a privilege. And finally, have you first given your heart to Christ? Are you giving with the mindset your life and everything in it belongs to God anyways, already? Or are you still the Lord and Master over your life? And you're worshiping self and you're just giving up bits and pieces incrementally. You're allowing God to have it. Is that your mindset or do you view your life, and everything in it as being owned by God because of the cross of Christ. 
because the ransom payment paid on the cross secure our lives. May God grant us grace this week as we consider 2 Corinthians 8 and the example of these Macedonian believers. May God's grace do the work in our hearts and in our church. Let's pray. Oh God, we run to you this morning. We run to the cross of Christ. For as we look at ourselves and look at our own hearts, we see things that are so vile, so offensive, so ugly in your sight. We find that indeed there is nothing good within us. We are indeed in our own eyes the worst of all sinners. We run to you, O Lord. We run to the cross. And we ask for a renewed vision of the cross of Christ, of the gospel that saved us, and the grace that is operating within us, even now. And we pray, all to your glory, that this grace would be working in our lives and in our church, so that uh, um, at the end, as we stand before you on that day, um, we would give glory to you and say, that you have accomplished all these things in our lives. And to you alone belong all honor, glory, and praise. Lord, we um, thank you for how generous you have been to us. How overwhelmingly you have been kind. You have poured out your mercy and grace upon us. We thank you for this undeserved favor. We um, Thank you and ask that the scriptures would give us wisdom, grant us sober minds, respond in a way that will be pleasing to you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.